We're going to return to the book of Ruth again this week. We'll be in chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 19 through 22. We're doing a little bit of a deeper dive in our study in Ruth. Um, And uh, if you have a pew Bible near you and you need that pew Bible, it'll be on page 222. So let us hear the reading of the Word of God as we look at Ruth 1 and beginning in 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Lord Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite with her, uh, daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they went to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love and mercy. I ask that you would be with us this morning as we dig into this passage, that you would open it up to us and help us to see the things you would have us see. Uh, Spirit, you're, you're going to be working in each individual heart here, Lord, showing us all different things. So we ask for you to come in your fullness, that we would be drawn more and more to Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen. Uh, Pastor and Dr. Jim Moore wrote a book, and it's entitled, You Can Get Bitter or Better. The most interesting thing of that title is where uh, Dr. Moore uh, got that from. It seems that he had a young woman come into his office and she had tears in her eyes and her knuckles were white from turning the, the handkerchief around in her hand. She had just received word that her 26-year-old husband had been killed in an accident and he had left her alone with three preschool-aged children. One moment he was alive, he was vibrant, and the next moment he was gone. She said, I don't know how I'm going to be able to get along without him. But I know one thing. I can get bitter, or I can get better. A disease you can't control, uh, being laid off from a job, seeing your child suffer after an accident, a relationship betrayal, Have you ever ventured to the edge of bitterness? If we're all honest, it doesn't necessarily take a life-altering issue to bring us to the edge of bitterness. So, what we need to do this morning as we come to our passage is to understand three things that will help us as we stand on that edge. The first one is this, bitterness will take a toll on us. The second one is is that bitter distress will lead us to either a right or wrong response. And then thirdly, we have overlooked support when it comes to bitter distress. So let's consider our first point this morning. Bitter distress takes a toll. You might imagine that uh, the, the words were still ringing in Naomi's ears as she walked. She had had in, um, 
giving Ruth and Orpah um, a challenge, a, a command, if you will, to go back to Moab, to go back to their mother's homes. But Ruth had other ideas. If you remember last week and if you've read the, the story, Ruth had other ideas, and at Naomi's strong insistence, she spoke incredibly insistent words right back to her. And she basically said, no, I will follow you. I'm going to follow you no matter what. I'm going to follow you to the grave. And then she also added to that, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. For Naomi, at this point, there was nothing more to say. She had made her, her press into these, this lady's life. Uh, they watched Orpah walk away, and here Ruth is, and she's saying, no, I'm going to cling to you. I am going to hold on to you. And so they walked there. And you wonder if Naomi, even though she had pressed these ladies to turn away and to go back to their mothers, you really wonder did she secretly enjoy having Ruth come with her? Did she really need that companionship? Well, on they went. Step after step, walking from Moab to back to Bethlehem. And the dust would stir as they walked, and their faces and forearms flecked with fine powder and moisture, and combined that, 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 that badge, if you will, of a weary traveler who's, who's been on a long journey. As they crossed into the Israelite territory, what laid ahead for them was not the usual thing that you see when you are at the end of a long trip. You know, you've, you've flown like from one place to another and you get off the plane and, and there's people there holding up signs saying, welcome or welcome home, mom, or welcome home, son, whatever the case may be. Or maybe you've had a long car ride across the country and you stop at your family's home and there they are with their smiling faces ready to hug you and embrace you. And as you do that, you can smell the home-cooked meal on the stove that awaits you inside those doors. None of that. None of that was happening here. In the ancient cities, such comings and goings were common. And so one might think these ladies would even arrive unnoticed. However, the text says in verse 19 that the whole, the whole little town is stirred because of them. The Hebrew word here could be translated, they echoed with excitement, or perhaps the town hummed with news of their arrival. It, 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 it's the same word that is used when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. People are, are excited. Who? Where? How? And as the whole town is abuzz with excitement over these new arrivals, they begin to murmur. Is that, is that who I think it is? Is that, is that Naomi? There was both surprise and bewilderment from the ladies in town. Why? Why was that? Well, could it be that they had not seen her for 10 years and are surprised she's back? Maybe even joyously they're surprised. Or might it describe the women's shocked whispering about her abject change in appearance? Hubbard points out that the accent falls not on this is this Naomi, but on is this Naomi? Meaning, is this Naomi? Really? 
So the text itself seems to be pointing out that from the viewpoint of these women, they can see the pain and the sorrow that has etched its way onto the very visage of Naomi so that the appearance of her is not what she once was. The bitter, the stress of life had its toll on her. Her countenance cried out, affliction. We can imagine, can't we? It's the look of Chris Gardner in the movie The Pursuit of Happiness. And as he enters a room of executives for an interview at Dean Winter's office, after being uh, uh, just on the very edge of poverty, he's in jeans, he's in a jacket and this uh, tank top sweatshirt underneath. He's spent the night in jail. He has paint all over him. And, and the look on his face is just one of utter desperation. I need this job. I can't tell you how bad. I need this job. It's the look of my grandmother that I saw for years after the death of my father. Remember a few weeks ago, we were reminded of Jesus' words in John 16.33 that say, In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. Sometimes that trouble can have a profound effect on us, even etch its way into the very visage of our appearance. Might you today be on the edge of bitterness? Maybe not today, but maybe at some point in your life. Maybe today, though, is the day you need to reach out to someone in that bitter distress of life. So that your heart does not turn toward bitterness. Or perhaps the bitter edge of distress is etched on the face of a friend or a family member that you know. It might be a disease. It may be a wayward child or a million other things. Do you need to reach out to them, to support them, to be a listening ear, to be a faithful companion? As we consider this, consider how you may minister to others. Consider reaching out when you need ministry. I think the call here is don't let that bitterness take us to the edge of despair. But reach out to those who would love us. Reach out to those that you would love. As we consider this, we also need to consider how we might respond to such situations. So understand that those things, the bitter distresses of life can take a toll on us. We need to be aware of that. We need to keep that in mind. Reach out to others around us. Reach out to them as they're going through things. But we also need to understand that bitter distress will lead to a right or wrong response on our part. Notice in verse 20. Look down at verse 20. At the mention of her name, Naomi notes that she no longer desires to be called Naomi. She tells us why here, but before we look at that, I want you to think for a moment about the scene that is unfolding before us. She's just arrived into the town where she lived before. 
You know, she most likely grew up here. It, it wasn't that big. She would have been reminded of places you could see her as she comes in. It's extremely sad to me. She comes in and she sees that place where she and her husband lived. She saw that place where they would go for walks together and talk. Maybe she sees the phantoms of her little boys running down the street. And only to awake to the reality that she faced. Her circumstances had changed drastically in the ten years or so she was away. And you can almost sense her grief bursting forth as she sees those old acquaintances, those old friends before her, as they're looking at her and calling her Naomi. And she's hit square in the face by the contradiction. Naomi? Pleasant? Oh, no, 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 no. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. How often we are knocked down by the tribulations, the disappointments, and the sorrows of life and allow bitterness to creep in. Even those of, of strong faith can waver in such distress. But I want you to notice here the reason that she gives for this name change. Picking up at verse 20. Call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Mara when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It's interesting here that the title she uses for the Lord here in Hebrew is Shaddai. And the English translation is the Almighty. That's how it's translated. The Almighty, Shaddai. This is an ancient title for the Lord. Shaddai is presented in the Scriptures in Genesis and in, in Job and other sections of Scriptures. The sovereign judge of the world who grants life and blesses. He kills and he judges. In Genesis, he blesses the patriarchs with fertility and promises numerous descendants. Outside of Genesis, for example, in Job, he blesses and protects and also takes away life and happiness. So as Daryl Bach notes in his commentary, as overseer of the heavenly council, Shaddai commands all the angelic hosts through whom his providential care and disciplinary judgment of humans is exercised. He adds whether or not Naomi's perceptions of God were this sophisticated. In her mind, it is by his title Shaddai that Yahweh has made her the target of his arrows of misfortune. So she's saying, the Lord Almighty has brought this upon me. Secondly, if you look in the text, verse 21, in the next verse, she borrows a term uh, from Israelite law that applies and applies it metaphorically here to her situation. She says, Yahweh has testified against me. So this portrays her legal, uh, a legal action in which she's already been found guilty as well as punished. Yet from her perspective, she knows neither the charges nor the testimony against her. But her point is, is that being that only since Yahweh controls all things and such things, He must have given witness against her. Finally, at the end of verse 21, she accuses Shaddai of afflicting her 
The verb in Hebrew translates as to inflict calamity and disaster. Its cognate noun, translated calamity and disaster as well, is often used of calamities in the Scriptures as sent by God in fulfillment of covenant curses. Which is what we talked about in the first sermon of this series. How God is, is punishing Israel at this time. Therefore, Naomi is not ascribing moral evil to God, but the disastrous, grievous misfortune that she has experienced by His hand. And so, look at the big picture here. Overall, she is saying that there is no other possible source for this situation in which she finds herself currently except in the will of the Lord Almighty. And just what is this situation as she steps back and looks at it? Her utter honestly just bleeds from the page as she exclaims, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. In other words, literally the Hebrew reads, I went away full but empty brought me back Yahweh. When she left, she was full. She was rich. Full in the sense that she had a husband. She had two sons. And they had their plans. They weren't materially rich. They were trying to escape from a famine. But they had their plans when they left. As Ferguson notes, their determination to do for themselves what God would not do for the impenitent is clear. This occasion, then, of of her return only reminds her, again, of all that she's lost. Now, here's the thing. Theologians, it's interesting to read commentaries on this, because theologians debate back and forth, what's going on here? Some theologians view these words that she uses as if she's shaking her fist in God's face going, you did this. But it's important to recognize that she does not say that she's bitter here. What she says is, is the Lord has dealt bitterly toward me. In other words, it appears to me, while some may disagree, that I see in her response, honesty. I see in her response that there's no stoicism here. There's no hiding. There's no false affronts. There's there's, uh, uh, no spin. There's no pretending. No burying her head in the sand. She is relating her sorrows before these ladies. And I think in a way that may even possibly honor God. If you read from Job, if you read from the psalmist, it seems that there is a candid evaluation of their pain, just as here there is a candid evaluation of what she is going through. Further, she does not attribute her situation to bad luck or mere chance. She's not saying, oh, I had a lot of bad luck. Oh, things just didn't go my way. She knows exactly from where this all came. And while, as one theologian said, some pain seems unbearable, some circumstances seem unjust, some answers unanswerable, she knows who holds it all in the grip of His hands. And yet at the same time, she's visibly changed. She's visibly shaken in her pain and grief. 
You see, we can have a a self-centered attitude when the bitter distress of life comes our way. Or we can recognize it is the Lord who holds all things in His hands. The reality is, is that we can't control the circumstances of life. But we can, in the Spirit of Christ, respond to Him in a biblical manner. We can by faith trust that God is working everything for our good, even when we don't feel like it. And even when we don't see that it's happening. When Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, it's not always easy to do. But having this verse in our hearts, even as, as Judy would say, praying this verse aloud, when things get difficult, when we are called to live out this command, it can be a great antidote against the bitter and critical spirit that is so easy for us to follow and to fall into. And so Naomi is saying that throughout it all, there is the unfolding of the absolute certainty of God's hand. God has been at work in her life and isn't reacting, and she isn't reacting to pain in an unbelieving way. She is simply acknowledging that God has dealt very bitterly, bitterly with her. But her trust is still in God. And, and the thing that highlights this is she went back to the house of bread. She's there with those people. And so this morning, I would ask you, might you discern that same signature, that same handwriting at work in your life? That in the various uh, twists and turns of pain and hardship and difficulty, you have known that God has been working out His sovereign purposes. If you believe this, if you hold on to this, if you respond in that way, instead of in selfish bitterness... You can press through. You see, the reality is is, is that the greatest bitterness that comes to us, the greatest hardship that could ever come to us is our death. But if we hold fast to Christ, and we trust in Him, and we know that He is sovereign, see, we can trust Him even in that, can't we? We can trust Him in that. This will keep you from the bitter edge of life's bitterness to you. Finally, let's look at the one key aspect of this passage that encourages us in life's distress. Overlook support in times of bitter distress. I think one of the most interesting things about this passage is, is that uh, Naomi is, is talking, and, and she uses these words again. It's in that center part. The Lord has brought me back empty. Literally, she's saying here that I, I've come back empty-handed. This statement is ironic. Why is that? Is she coming back empty-handed? There's a young woman standing right beside her. Her name is Ruth. And if she would just kind of elbow her like that, she'd hit her in the arm and, ow, don't do that. Right there. Right there beside her. She's overlooked, isn't she? Ever loyal. 
ever faithful. Ruth stands there beside her as she you know, unwittingly speaks these words. Ruth will eventually prove to be the one who reverses Naomi's plight and fills her emptiness. Naomi's perspective will prove to be totally inaccurate and short-sighted, so much so that these same women will later come to her, much later in this story, they'll come to her and they'll show her how wrong she was. Would you flip over to to Ruth chapter 4 with me real quick? Look at verse 14 there. Just a few pages over. Ruth 4. So Ruth, at this point, has been given a son by the kinsman redeemer. Notice what the ladies say here, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who what? Loves you. Who is more to you than what? Seven sons. Has given birth to him. Let that soak in for a moment. This woman Ruth is better to you than seven sons. She loves you. Naomi had no idea, did she? Naomi really had no idea what the Lord was doing. She could not see the kinsman redeemer who who would rescue her and would bless her. Nor could she see the true redeemer Jesus who was to come through Boaz and her loving daughter-in-law and that little precious redeemer that was born to her. She could not see that she was about to be filled with fullness beyond measure in the rich promises and the grace and the mercy of the Lord. She simply could not fathom that pleasant was exactly what the Lord had in store for her for always and always and always. But she will. Because you see, the text tells us that the times are changing. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. I love this. This transition verse is awesome. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. When? At the beginning of the barley harvest. The Lord is back to blessing Bethlehem. He's given them a harvest. And all this is a transition, not just to show the time of what's going on here, but to show the transition that the Lord of the harvest, the fullness, is going to bring that fullness back in to Naomi's life. And since God's doing a million things at one time, He's bringing that fullness back in to Israel's world. And to show that God is doing more abundantly than we can ever think or imagine. He was bringing that fullness into our world through the kinsman redeemer. Who was the great, 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 great grandfather of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God was working out his purposes to bring Jesus to us. In our times of bitter distress in life, we often overlook those things, don't we? 
We often overlook that person beside us that's encouraging us and that is praying for us. I can't tell you one of the most blessed things that I have is when people say, I've been praying for you. Thank you. I love that. When we have our minds off the reality that the Lord is doing incredible things to bring about His purposes even now, when we take our eyes off that, we overlook the hand of the Lord. When we take our eyes off the fact that the Lord Jesus came for us to die for our sins, we overlook the support that we have in times of bitter distress. When we take our eyes off the fact that Jesus not only died for us, but rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit walks with us, goes with us. We overlook the support in times of bitter distress. Through prayer, through God's people. Don't overlook the support that you have. But rejoice in the mercy. Unlike Ruth, folks, listen to me. Unlike Ruth, we know the rest of the story. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and mercy to us. I know this morning, Lord, that we went in deep and talked about some things that we would struggle with here. But I pray that we would see their overall message here that the Lord gives us. Not to overlook the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Not to overlook the plan that you are working out even amidst our suffering, Lord. You are doing all things for good to those who love you, to those called according to your purpose. It may not seem that way sometimes. We may not see it. But we know the end of the story. So we have to believe it's true. Father, help us in our unbelief. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.